You better homework, just for two minutes, turn to the person near to you and you need to discuss this. When I say the word commitment, is that a positive or a negative thing? Commitment, does it fill you with joy or does it fill you with a sense of burden? Tell me about the word commitment. What kind of connotations does the word commitment have? Okay, you've got one or two minutes, turn to somebody near to you. If you're not near to somebody, then move to somebody near to you. Tell me how that makes you feel. Do you want to sit by mummy? Do you want to sit by mummy? It's okay, I'll tell you when to go back there. Okay, that word commitment. Do we like the word commitment or do we not like the word? Does it fill us full of joy or does it give us the shudders? What do we think of the word commitment? What do you think? Full of possibilities. Brilliant. Good. What else? Do we like the word commitment? We do. Okay. You don't? It's scary. Brilliant. Thank you for that. Okay, if, if, if commitment is... Uh, if, totally sold on the idea of the word commitment, liking the word commitment is that end, and uh, hating the idea of commitment and not liking the word commitment at all is that end, whereabouts are you on the scale between the two? I know it's a bit constructed, but whereabouts are you between the two? Are you sort of, sort of uh, are we sort of like, mm, or are we sort of like, whereabouts are we? But yeah, that was all of them. <laughs> this ends? Okay, so we're going to try an experiment now. This is, I know we're not a Pentecostal church, but we're going to get there in the end if it kills me. So we'll start here, and as we go to the scale, when it reaches where you are on the liking of the word commitment... Okay, no, we're just talking about the word commitment. That's all we're doing, and that's quite on purpose, okay? Brilliant, so are we ready? Okay, so I want a yay as to where you are. Ready? And the rest of you kept quiet. Okay, brilliant, good, okay. Now we had a very good question there, which we'll hopefully get answered in a minute, but I'm just talking about the whole idea, the theory of the word commitment, because to some of us, it means different things, doesn't it? When you say commitment, it's like the shudders to others of it. Oh, that's a good and positive thing. When you talk to me about the commitment, about I have to do empty the bins in our house because Nathan's away visiting his family, I'm like, be committed to that. Oh, I hate the idea. But the idea of somebody being committed to me and bringing me breakfast in bed every day, I'm like, yeah, I'm there all the time. Okay? So it depends on the context, doesn't it? Now, why am I talking about this? Well, I'm going to do, do something a little bit risky here, which is I'm going to read a quote. I don't often do that on Sunday mornings. And you'll see why I'm doing it when I get to the end. In the 1980s, there was this study entitled The Habits of the Heart. It was produced by a small group of sociologists at Berkeley University in California to analyse people's attitudes towards commitments, particularly social commitments. The theme of the whole study is the tension between individual freedom and social commitment. And one of its most significant findings concerned people's attitudes towards feelings. 
what the compilers discovered was that, the, that with traditional ideas, sorry, sorry uh, I'll start the sentence again. What the compilers discovered was that people with traditional ideas took the view that feelings should always be subordinate to duty. Hence, they placed a high value on such virtues as self-control, self-denial, self-discipline, self-sacrifice. They saw marital love as a commitment to, of the will to be honoured irrespective of whether one's feelings about it were good or bad. But the research revealed that the traditional attitude was very rapidly being displaced in modern society by a totally different attitude, which they called the therapeutic attitude. On this view, feelings take priority over everything else. The important virtues are not those that restrain the expression of the self, but those of, uh, 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 that liberate it. Honesty and openness are what count, not self-discipline, self-denial, self-control or self-sacrifice, but rather self-fulfillment, self-realization, self-acceptance. These are the buzzwords of the therapeutic attitude. So the therapeutic idea of love is spontaneous and, uh, and sharing of feelings between authentic, expressive individuals. And long-term commitment does not necessarily feature in such a relationship at all. So according to this attitude, if my emotional needs are not being met by my partner, I am entitled to sever the relationship. The therapeutic attitude denies all forms of social obligation or duty, replacing them with the ideas of open and honest communication. The only thing a therapeutically liberated lover owes to his or her partner is to share his or her feelings fully. Emotional independence and self-sufficiency are the goal. A personal relationship is simply seen as a device for achieving this essentially individualistic goal. Now, I apologize for the long quote, but my guess is that you can see both society and even things within yourself written all across that quote, can you? You see, that's, that's, that's the way we're going at the moment, it seems. Um, so today, as we look at this, this theme of seeing a marriage in practice, although marriage isn't the big theme here, we see it in practice illuminating a big, big thing. I want us to be thinking about where we sit on whether we like the idea of commitment. Are we, when it comes to relationships, and I'm not just talking about the marriage relationship, I'm talking about friendships, I'm talking about our attitude to our work, our attitude to, to our church, to our neighbours, to the people around us, to the relationships we make with people. Are we at the idea at, at this end where commitment, oh, or are we at the end here where commitment is actually something that's so difficult we must work towards? And if it is something we must work towards, then how are we going to do it? Where do we get the resources from, the power? So it's all about marriage today, but not about a ring on a finger. You see a sandal slapped on the table in the middle. But it's more than marriage. It's actually about redemption. Redemption. Being brought back from a difficulty at the payment of a price. A costly redemption, we find in these verses here. And it speaks of a greater redemption, which I've already told you about. This is like a small example of the great redemption that God is at work doing in this world. So often it's easy to think, if you're not familiar with the Christian message, that the Christian message is all about God polishing up the outsides of people who in and of themselves are okay. But actually, if you carefully read through the Bible, it's not a story of polishing up the outsides. It's the story of how we are rotten to the core because of our rebellion against God, and the situation is so serious that he has to perform a redemption that is immensely costly, not to us, but to him. 
And so what's this message going to do? Well, as we look into this first part of Ruth chapter 4, if you're somebody who is hurt by failed commitment to you, I think this will bring you comfort. If you're somebody who is failing in their commitment and hurting others, then I think that this section of scriptures will change you. I think if you're someone who is convinced that nobody would ever commit themselves to you, look at the state of you. Then I think that this is going to convince you otherwise. I think if you're somebody who is scared of committing, I think that this will empower you. 23 times in the book of Ruth, there's only four short chapters, there's this idea of redeeming and redemption. And here in this last little bit, we're going to see it in action. So we're going to see three things that make up redemption in the context of a a marriage story. It is the right of redemption, or the right to redeem, the resources that are needed to redeem, and the resolve that is needed to redeem. I've already sent Matty to sleep. I'll tell you what, we're not doing so good today. Here I mate. Brilliant, good job. We had somebody who used to sit at the front doing those little, uh, what do they call the Scoobies, to keep themselves awake. I've never seen somebody lying on the chair in front of them to keep themselves awake. I think perhaps you've been your own worst enemy. But anyway, we'll carry on. Okay, number one, the right of redemption. So we've just had two dust till dawn. We see Matty himself being the Boaz. Uh, the violins and the music, if this was a Hollywood epic, which uh, the tension is building. Even the mother-in-law says, it's going to get fixed by tomorrow, Ruth. So she's dashing around, she's pacing, she's biting her nails. But there's a fly in the ointment to Ruth marrying Boaz. And it's this other guy, it's this nearer redeemer. And it's like a bucket of cold water over the plot if this was a great film. Boaz wants to do the right thing. He wants to get it right. Now, our modern age would probably say, ah, blow doing it right. If it feels good, go for it. But Boaz is a man of principle. He respects that God has put things in a certain order for a certain way. And if you want to work outside of God's pattern, then you're going to, the only person who long term is going to struggle with that is that's going to be you. So chapter 3, verse 18, Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today because he's got to deal with this issue of the Redeemer. Now, there were two, um, there were, there were two not traditions, but patterns that were set down in the Old Testament of the ways in which commitment within a culture were reflected. One was the, um, the leveret responsibility. Leveret is short for brother-in-law, which basically meant that if a, a widow was left with no means of providing for herself because her husband had died, God had written in a provision to protect that widow and the husband's name by saying that the nearest relative, the nearest brother, had a responsibility to marry that woman, his sister-in-law, to marry her, to carry on, their first child, if they had one, would carry on the family name and the family inheritance. That was the leveret's responsibility. Boaz isn't the nearest. He's a little bit further away. Okay? Then you've got the concept of a redeemer which is spoken about in Leviticus 25, where the idea is if you get yourself into a total jam, perhaps you are frivolous with your money or because disaster comes your way, the Lord had a provision for you. Such was the way he put together the society that if you were in dire need and couldn't provide for yourself, you got yourself into credit card debt, you could call upon a near kinsman redeemer who would pay for you to be delivered out of that. So what they would do is, at great cost to themselves, they would pay your debt so you don't have to be sold into slavery to pay for your debt. They would rescue you from your situation. That was what the Redeemer did. So this is what 
Boaz is saying, if this guy won't do it, then I will. So poor Boaz, you've got to remember, he'd not slept very well the night before. He'd had an anxious woman at his feet. It's the crack of dawn, he gets up, he goes and plants himself at the city gates, he orders himself a cafe latte with a cinnamon swirl and waits for the right guy to come along. And you can't see it there in the NIV translation, but it's the same word as, uh, as it happens, came up in um, chapter 2, it's the same word which basically means, as if by magic, of all the people who could turn up at the time, guess who it is? It's the kinsman redeemer. So what does he say there, verse 1? When the kinsman redeemer uh, he, mentioned, uh, he had mentioned came along, Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. That's in the Hebrew, in the scouts, he would say, Hey, mate, come on, laugh, and sit down. That's basically what he'd say. Now, this guy doesn't have a name, and I'll tell you why shortly. But I want you to notice that in this story, where the narrator's very careful about naming names and getting people right, doesn't bother with the name. Hey, mate, come over there, sit down. Boaz has a plan. I want you to think James Bond in Casino Royale. You think that? Because Boaz knows that he's not the first in line. He's got to do some serious manoeuvring to get in there. So he has to set it up right or he's going to lose Ruth. So, I mean, I suppose, again, you're probably like me, you know, you probably want to say, Boaz, stop messing about. It's just a piece of paper. Just go and marry the girl. But he's determined that he's going to get the right to do it. Um, well, I don't my notes. Okay. So, what happens? The fellow sits down and Boaz brings it to his attention. So, Boaz, verse 2, Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the kinsman redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so, but if you will not, tell me so that I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he says. No! says the crowd. You've got to look well at this point. Total poker face. Do you remember in Casino Royale what Bond says? You don't play the cards, you play the man. And he's playing this guy for a total chump. We had cards around at our house the other night. There was Matty Rage, John and Sarah, um, me and Jane and poor Nathan. So John was sitting there and when he got a good hand he got this determined look on his face. When Matty was there he got a good hand which didn't come around very often. He had a confident look on his face. Sarah and Rage, they just looked anxious and Nathan, he just looked confused. Um, but anyway, uh, there it was. The tension was building and building. But what will happen? I can't tell you yet. Because I need to just get something else dead clear before we move on. What will happen? I need, you to, I need to point this out to you. And I want you to think on it just a little bit. Doing it right is more important than we often believe. We don't put a fat lot of stock in doing it right. We just say the means justify the ends in our culture. And yet through the Bible, the Bible puts an awful lot of stock in doing it right. Boaz does, and it is taken as an example of his trust in God, that God is bigger than any hurdle or obstacle that might come that way. He trusts in God's provision of a kinsman redeemer and the Leverite marriage, even if it risks what he wants. 
he puts it over into God's hand. He says, I'm going to do this right. I'm going to gain the right to be a redeemer. God did it this way, structured life, and I trust him. But what Boaz does is he prepares the way for the ultimate redeemer, the ultimate near relative who came to redeem. So let me read to you, please, from Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15. And you'll hear of another near relative, another near redeemer. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, paying of his price, he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free, redeem, those who all, all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Do you get that? Jesus said, I'm going to do this right, and I'm going to have the right of redemption, so much so that he would leave the glories of heaven and put on a skin and come in flesh, so that he would be a near relative with a right to redeem you and me. Jesus has the right to redeem us. God became flesh to redeem. He didn't do a half-hearted stunt. It was full commitment. This will be done right and it will be done securely so that you can have confidence in it. He made himself a near relative to rescue me and to rescue you. He has the right to redeem us. But let's move on. I said there was a second one. Oh, it's the resources to redeem us. The resources. So, let's get back to the story. Here we go. The tension is building. It's been terrible. If Ruth had been sitting in the bushes watching what would have happened, she'd have been gripping her hair and pulling it out. Going, no! This is terrible. I want Boaz as my fella. This guy's like, no, no, no. I will redeem it. And you can understand why the guy goes for this. Because monetarily, it was in his interests. It's very little layout for him to look after an old widow and her daughter-in-law. And he gets all the land that was in Elimelech's name. Naomi's now past it, so she's not going to have any more kids. That inheritance will go to his family. Thumbs up, job's a good one. Good one. It's a small layout with a big dividend, and he has the resources to do that. What well, does he have the resources? Well, poker face. Boaz is there. He's as hard as iron. And Boaz drops his ace on the table. Verse 5, and we can see it there. Whoops, when I get back into the right chapter of the Bible. Verse 5, then Boaz said, On the day that you buy the land from Naomi and from Ruth the Moabitess, you acquire the dead man's widow in order to maintain the name of the, of the dead with his property. He's dropped an ace into you and me. We're like, yeah, so what? But it changes everything. He stands there and he goes, oh, I have to marry her. What if she has a son and I've got to split my stuff between two estates? Forget her needs, forget her destitution, forget the fact that she's sort of struggling along, forget the fact that, um, that, that God would, would have me honour her by providing for her. Forget that for a minute. I'm the closest near relative. Um, I can't do this. this. This puts my plans, my agenda at risk. Forget that I'm the nearest relative and I should already have been looking out for her but haven't. And at this point, we begin to get a feel for why this the narrator hasn't named this guy. This story would have been written, uh, written down within three or four generations. His family name would still be around. This guy is covered in shame. He basically says, it would take away from what I have, it would cost me. 
And surely that's the point, isn't it, of redemption? Redemption is costly. It costs our lifestyle. It makes a dent in your plans. When you commit to somebody, you're prepared to say that I will include them in my big picture. He had the resources in his pocket to do it, but where didn't he have the resources? He didn't have the resources in his heart. And in that way, he's a lot like you and me. Now, we don't mind a noble gesture. In fact, most of us probably here get comic relief or something similar to that. We don't mind a noble gesture as long as it doesn't cost us too much, as long as there's perhaps something in it for me or maybe it makes me look good in front of other people. It furthers my sense of well-being and I like to sort of add that spiritual element of my life. But as long as those things fit around my existing priorities, then I'm okay to do it. But if you were to take, ask me to make a, a cut into my afternoon off, or if you were to ask me to go without the nice LCD TV so that I could give to somebody who has less, then I'm afraid I'm not quite as keen to give. Ask me to do any of those things, and immediately I'm like, whoa, commitment doesn't look quite so good right now. It's somebody else's problem. You see, covenant, covenant commitment isn't just warm words on good intentions. Redemption and commitment is always, always costly. It's not giving to others once, we, um, once our own needs have met. And this is, the, this is the difficult bit about Christian, real biblical Christianity. Because we live in a, in a world that says, okay, I will give, but only when I've covered my own basis first. But biblical Christianity is all about a God who gave, irrespective of what it cost him, and his people will take on that model as well. And here's this guy, when he sees what it will cost him, how it will threaten his tightly fought for plans that he has has legitimised in his own head and he's rationalised it away, but he's actually very much emotionally attached to it. He sees the cost is too high, and verse 6 pops up. At this the kinsman redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself, I cannot do it, you fix the problem. Now we live in an age where you can have sins of commission and sins of omission. Commission are things where you decide, I'm going to go my jolly own way, I don't care what other people think, I don't care what God thinks. Now I reckon sitting in here in church, we're probably quite good at minimising those and even covering them up. But then there's the sins of omission. The ones where basically there's things we should have done, but because we're looking after our own estate, our own priorities, our own vision, we don't do We may have the resources in our pocket, but in what way are we destitute? Our hearts aren't big enough. So when asked to step up and be a redeemer, and often I've spoken to people, I've looked at myself, and I've come up short on this one. I've been reluctant. We live in an age where we outsource our commitment that we should look after people. We put elderly people in homes... We leave dealing with crime on our streets to the politicians. Uh, we leave the education and the upbringing of our children to the schools and to the telly. We just outsource it. Um, so when I speak to people, and speaking to people from time to time I do about this, I say, look, there's this need here. Could you step up in this way? Could you be a redeemer? Sometimes I've been faced with, just so subtly, just the attitude that says, how dare you suggest that I do that? Don't you know how much pressure I'm under? And I accept that, you know, but I also accept the fact that so often we can be wooed 
into living for earthly priorities and not eternal ones. I think us fellas are particularly bad at that. We can get so, our eyes so focused on living for this that we forget that actually our life, ultimately 50 billion years away, will be defined by how we lived for that. Now this is hard, and I'm not looking to guilt anybody in this, but I'm just calling us for a bit of a reality check. It's a great thing to do at this time of year, isn't it? Loads of you are working hard for the good of other people, and I rejoice in that, and I pray for you, and I want to encourage you in that. But at the same time, I've reflected on conversations that I've had over the last five or six years. I've I've reflected on things that I've done with myself in the mirror, where perhaps somebody or myself has responded negatively to the idea of being presented with a need and the suggestion that they could step up to help out. And as they responded negatively, I think that their negative response, or my negative response, has had less to do with how busy they were or I am, and more to do with the fact that they've got, or I have got, closely guarded self-interest, ambition, and assumed rights. I want this in my life, and therefore I can't do that. What does Boaz show us? Redemption is costly. To do the right thing is tough. We have the resources by the fact that all of us have got breath in our bodies, we've got life in our legs, we've got money in our bank account. We can act for the good of others, but so often we choose not to. Please, can we get away from any idea that bringing up children will not, in a godly way, will not be costly? It will take time. The idea that you can build a strong marriage and it not cost you is nuts. The idea that you can have rich and deep relationships with people within your church fellowship or your neighbours without cost to you is bonkers. The idea that you can be an effective church leader without stepping up and it costing you something is nuts. The idea that Jesus Christ will be glorified here and speak without it costing us something is bonkers. Isn't this a good time of year to reflect for a second as to whether or not we're a little bit like the mate rather than Boaz? And if you're like me, as you think and ponder on this, you say to yourself, hold on Steve, where am I going to get the resources to change my heart? Well, it's when you remember what he did, isn't it? You have to go to him for the resources. You have to hit the, go to him who, the Bible tells us, he who being in the very nature God, made himself a servant of all. He had all the resources and could have just gone <coughs> to all of us, but he says, no, I will become the servant of all and I will give myself over even to death on a cross to redeem you. I won't just give a bit of what I have, I will give you the best of what I have. I will give you my very self to pay for your wrong, that you may be set free from the burden of your sins against God. I will redeem you, and what's more, I will restore you. So much so that in the next chapter of the Bible, from where that quote comes from, if the Apostle Paul, a selfish, self-indulgent man, who was only interested in furthering his own agenda, was able to say, I want to know Christ and share in the fellowship of his sufferings. When you see Jesus... Your whole agenda changes. You want to be a redeemer too. You want to use your resources for his glory. And so that's by far my longest point. But do you get what redemption is? It's a commitment that says, I will step up if I'm able. 
I would like you to go away prayerfully from today to say, have I been more like Boaz or his mate? And if I've been more like his mate, praise God that there is a redeemer who pays for my sin, and praise God that when he gets involved in my life, I will be able to share my resources to redeem others. Quickly and lastly, we see that redemption, when we see redemption, you need to have the right, you need to have uh, the resources, but you also finally need to have the resolve. And this is what his mate lacked. He just couldn't be bothered. He just wasn't that bothered. It shows us how different Boaz is from this guy. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, verse 9, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian and Marlon. I've also acquired Ruth the Moabitess, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from the town records. Today, you are my witnesses. So there is a resolve that this thing ain't going to be done in the corner, it's going to be done out in public. The commitment will be a public one. He wanted it public. He wanted Naomi and Ruth to know that he was giving himself to them. Can you imagine how their heart must have leapt at that point? He wants them to know that in a few years' time, when perhaps he gets a bit older, a bit more grouchy, and a bit more grumpy, he's not going to turn to them and say, well, I gave you a job, but that's all I really meant to do. Well, it felt good at the time, but it, come on, you pet, you know I didn't really mean it forever. He's doing it publicly with witnesses, a public declaration, a mark of his sincerity and his seriousness. He wanted the community to hear and hold him to it. That's why it was public. It's one of the reasons why we have a membership here at the local church. We say to people, come and share in worshipping with us, but we would love to encourage you to publicly stand up and say that as much as God helps me, I recognise that he has put me here to stand shoulder to shoulder with those in this church family for the honour and glory of Jesus and for the growth of my own spiritual life. So I publicly commit, because I want to be publicly held to it with your help, because it's hard to fulfil a promise like that. And when it comes to marriage, countless times, you've probably heard it said, you've probably been in discussions with people and they've said, oh, it's just a piece of paper. We don't need it, we love one another. Have you heard that? Of course you have. Well, if two people did love each other, wouldn't they want to make a declaration publicly that they do? In sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, for better or for worse. I'll tell you what, those are hard promises, aren't they? I've been married 11 and a half years. Those are hard promises to make and hard promises to keep. So I did it publicly to let others and to let my wife know how serious I was about keeping them. I can't pedal now just because it's getting a bit hard. I can't get pedal now because I haven't got enough money in the bank to keep this thing going. I can't back out because, well, you've changed and you're not the person I seem to marry. No, this is the person who I'm going to commit myself to and I want you lot to hold me to account. That's how serious the Bible marriage is. Isn't that freeing? Isn't that encouraging? But people would commit to each other and say, no matter what it feels like, no matter what happens, I'm going to stick with you. I love being in a committed marriage. It means, when she knows so much more about me than you, and the ugly and horrible things about me that you guys don't, she knows it, 
and she stuck with me. That's what it's supposed to be about. So somebody won't publicly commit to you, but they say, I love you, I think you'd have plenty of an excuse not to take them too seriously, to be honest with you. They might want, you might want them to love you, but if they're not prepared to do it publicly, I think you should be very doubtful as to whether they really do love you. What it's saying is, in private I love you, but I don't want to be held to that. What if you're grumpy? What if you're not the person I thought you were? What if I meet somebody with nicer legs? What if I meet somebody with a fatter bank balance? Oh, well, I want an excuse, a get-out clause. Let's live together and see how it goes. Have you heard that one? It seems so sensible, doesn't it? Let's test drive it. <laughs> yeah, the statistics show that those who do cohabit before they marry are much more likely to have a divorce. Now, why is that? Well, it's common sense, isn't it? If marriage is built on the foundation of I will love you no matter what and cohabiting is built on the foundation of well, let's give it a go and see if it works, we'll stick at it. By the time you have moved on to marriage, what is the foundation you're still living on? You're still living on the one where you started, which was, well, we'll give it a go and see whether it works. And if not, we'll get out. So that's why. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? So here we have this wonderful picture of Boaz saying, forget worry, forget anxiety, no matter what it takes, no matter what it costs, no matter what you're like when you're in the morning or in the evening, no matter whether you're sick or well, no matter whether it's for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, you and me, kidder, we're going for it, and I'm slapping my sandal on the table, which was equivalent to putting on a ring, slapping my sandal on the table to show everybody that this is unbreakable, and I am there. And as we look on that, I think our eyes are turned to another table. A table the night before God, Good Friday, where the Lord Jesus broke bread and poured out the wine and to a bunch of sinners who would let him down he says this is the blood of the new covenant that I make with you no matter how much you fail me I will pay for your sin and do whatever it takes to be in covenant relationship I will glue myself to you in love I know the worst about you. I know what you have done, what you will do, what you are doing at the moment, and yet I commit myself publicly, so publicly that he would go out on that cross, bearing the weight of our sin, and before all and sundry say, I draw a line in the sand to say, I will be your redeemer. I commit to you. You might think it's impossible that you, anybody would commit to you. Other people might tell you, why on earth would anybody commit to you? But I do it. I commit to you through thick and thin. What a comfort. It means that however you feel today, and you look back on the last few weeks, and you say, oh, who's ever committed to me? Look at the state of me. Look at what I've done. Look at how I've not fulfilled my part of the bargain with the Lord Jesus. Look how I'm just such a rubbish Christian. He says... I've committed to you and there is nothing that you can do to me that would mean I would leave you or forsake you or break that part of the deal. I have publicly committed and I'm with you. Can I tell you that no other redeemer will love you like that? 
Marriage is good, but marriage is broken. And we do get let down by people. Don't slap that label on Jesus. If you reach out to him in faith and say, Lord, I want to be bound to you, your salvation, your power, he will say, I do and I will, and nothing will change that. No other redeemer will love love you like this. At Christmas, he's not coming down and saying, uh, obey me. He's coming down and saying, I want to be near you and I've made a way. I want to be married to you. I will make you a committed redeemer. I will give you the right, as I have, I will give you the right to go out and perform rescue and redemption in Jesus' name. I will give you the resources, my gospel. Go with my gospel. Go on. Get busy. Tell other people about me. Look at me every time you feel weak and feel selfish. Look at me. See what I did and it will change your heart and soften you. And I've got the resolve. He says, lo, I am with you even to the very end of the age. Nothing will get in the way. So I finish simply with that last little line of the song. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died. And that he died for me. I stand together and sing when the introduction has been played. Come back, Is it working? Brilliant. Let's stand together. Son, to make the wretch his prayer.